thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara and I'm here by myself today. And the reason I'm here by myself is that I did an unusual interview for my Functional Nutrition Academy. And well, it actually wasn't unusual for the Functional Nutrition Academy, but it might be a little bit unusual for up for a chat. But I was so enthralled with this guest that I decided that it would be really amazing if you got to hear what this man has to say. This man is Charles Massey. Charles Massey is a farmer. He also has a PhD in agriculture. In 1990, he wrote the book, The Australian Merino, The Story of a Nation. In 2006, it was Breaking the Sheep's Back. But it's his 2017 book that has captured the nation and has captured um, farmers around the world and, and what he sees as what's happening in agriculture and how agriculture can actually be part of climate change change. So his new book is called Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture, A New Earth. And what I found absolutely fascinating about Charles Massey is that as a nutritionist, I have two overarching Uh, concepts that I live by when it comes to nutrition. The first is the historical perspective. What did we used to eat? How did we live? What were foods like um, as we evolved? What were foods like just, you know, 50 years ago? My other overarching principle uh, and philosophy is vitalism. So looking holistically at the whole um, body as well as where the body lives and you know, the toxicology of the home and the toxic foods that they might be consuming. So holistically looking. And what I loved about Charles Massey, and you will hear this in the interview, is that he thinks about agriculture like I think about food and eating and nutrition for the human being. So he has two things that he looks at. He looks at the historical way that this land was farmed compared to, and I'm talking about Australia, compared to the English farming. And he'll talk about that and how, you know, the the land in England was a very new land and it was formed by glaciers, whereas the Australian landscape and the Australian land was very ancient and very old. And he talks about those differences. So I fell in love with him straight away, as you can imagine. And then the second thing that he looks at is holistic view of management of of, um, of the land, but more so regenerative. And he talks about that as opposed to sustainable, he wants to regenerate the land. And we had this amazing discussion and I thought my, you know, our Up For A Chat audience would love to listen in on this fabulous interview. Welcome, Charles Massey. I'm um, very excited to be speaking to you today. Uh, great to be with you, Cindy. Wonderful. Hey, so let's just um, first start talking uh, about your book and um, the name of the book. I want to know, where did that come from? Yes, a lot of people ask that and I probably don't explain it enough. It's, um, as you probably realise reading a book, uh, it's full of lots of stories because, you know, we're, we're a species made for stories. 
And uh, essential to that is uh, metaphor. We're hardwired for metaphors. So this is really a metaphor for regenerative ag and how wonderful it can be. So look, um, it goes back to a few years ago, a friend of mine who was, was actually um, a leading economist, he and his wife own a little farm just out of Canberra. And he told me he was regenerating his creek using sort of um, combination of Peter Andrews type work, but also um, holistic grazing. So I went out to have a look and we drove over, it was a pretty dry season, we drove over, um, over a hill and past the neighbour upstream, which uh, what we would call set stock, where the animals are left there the whole time. So the ground was bare, there's erosion, um, the creek... Um, showed signs of active erosion and, and there was dry land salinity. And then we went over another hill and, and came to David and Jane's Valley and uh, it was a stark contrast. So uh, in front of me was um, this greened up um, creek and valley with a lot of green vegetation. The, the green was spreading out from a hydrated um, lateral creek, you know, quite a few hundred metres with quite a bit of grass compared to the neighbour. And we, we were standing in the uh, in this creek just yarning about this and what he'd done. And uh, I noticed a small patch of Phragmites reeds, those very tall reeds, uh, which clearly obviously been introduced recently by some by a water bird or something. And while we were talking, suddenly out of this little patch came this powerful cry I, uh, or call of a reed warbler, which is only a small bird, you know, not much bigger than a sparrow. And it suddenly hit me. Um, that was probably the first time in 150 years of European mismanagement that a reed warbler had returned to that valley, just because these people were starting to love and regenerate their land. And I just thought it was such a wonderful metaphor for what's possible and, and what we can do. Oh, I didn't realise that. Thank you. Um, because I keep looking at it going, how did he come up with that? So, yeah, that's brilliant. So let's talk about um, your book that you interviewed 150 regenerative farmers. I think what really fascinates me is that your explanation of um, European history of farming and then coming to Australia, you know, 200 years ago and expecting to farm the same way. Can you explain the difference between their land, how they farmed our land and, and what it's done to our land? Yeah, look, that's a, a, cool, a really key question. And um, behind that is, is what led me to write the book in many ways is the fact that um, I had to take over this farm at the age of 22 when my father got sick. Now, I'd grown up on a farm, but that doesn't mean you know anything about management. So I, I sought the best advice when I, I came home from uni, finished uni part-time. Um, and the best advice was industrial agriculture. Um, so I, I talked to the Department of Ag, CSRO, uh, the best, in inverted brackets, farmers locally, and, and, and so set about trying to be a, a good modern farmer, but in the process I did uh, a lot of damage. Um, Plowed beautiful native grasslands and overstocked and used a bit of chemical, etc. Uh, and at the end of that, especially at the end of the big 80s drought, um, I realised there was, had to be a better way. And, and um, So that really was what led... Uh, it caused, forced me to reflect on what I'd been doing, and I realised I had what I call no ecological literacy. I couldn't read the landscape. If you like, I was sort of dyslexic. I 
didn't know how it functioned and that, um, you know, how I could, and that was why I could damage it so easily. So, and that goes back to the fact that, as I explain in the book, um, if you look at the indigenous people who managed this land for over 60,000 years, over 2,000 generations, um, if you read Bill Gamage and Bruce Pascoe and people, you'll see that the land was management, was managed. It wasn't haphazard um, Aboriginals uh, or Torres Strait Islanders just wandering along, you know, um, gathering a bit of food. They, they were, in a sophisticated manner, burning to create healthy country, track game, um, actively managing, um, you know, food crops, etc. Um, and so that that mind, uh, if you look at uh, some of the writers who've really looked at it, is what you'd call an organic mind. These most almost all indigenous, long-lasting indigenous people have it, which is where they see themselves as part of Mother Earth, inseparable to it, um, not separate from it. You know, they have religious cycles and everything. But the mind that hit Australia after 1788, and particularly when they started the farm in the early 19th century, was quite different. It, it, it had arisen out of um, what was quite a wonderful process following the renaissance of the scientific revolution and the industrial capitalist revolutions, etc. Um, you know, many good things, but that mind led to what's um, been well described as um, the mechanical mind, where you know, following Newton and, and um, Adam Smith and all those guys, the, 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 both the universe and the economy were seen as sort of mechanistic. So you could call it a, a mechanical mind, uh, where the Earth, instead of being seen as something that's part of us and we're indivisible to, is now seen as a separate substrate from which we extract profits. And so when the Europeans arrived in Australia, <coughs> out of Northwest Europe, um, they brought that mind and they weren't just, um, they were coming to a totally different universe, so to speak. So they came from really what was a young post-glacial landscape, only 11,000 years fresh, really, um, chock full of nutrients from when the ice melted and the rivers deposited nutrients, etc., and a humid atmosphere and soils. And they come to this continent, one of the oldest in the world, up to 3.8 billion years old, some of the Western country. Um, highly leached, therefore, underneath it's a lot of salt. And, um, and they applied, and they also came in the midst of a sort of colonial expansion. So Australia was seen, once they discovered the pasture lands for wool, um, you know, obviously gold, but then wheat and later meat, it was seen as a, a, a colonial um, supply base for the uh, industrial engines of initially uh, uh, Britain and then Europe. Um, and so that mechanical mind applied technology from that young northwestern Europe um, and, and to a, a far more complex, highly evolved ancient landscape that was really incredibly sensitive. And, and um, as I outline in the book, you know, the results were, were very quick and very devastating in, in land degradation. Yeah, they have been um, absolutely devastating. It's interesting um, that one of the things that you point out that phosphorus is one of the things that is um, not in um, great amounts in the Australian landscape. And I had um, Dr. Don Huber from Purdue University on my yeah. farm last week. 
along with a couple of other people and he walked through my landscape and, you know, there were red tips on my gra- one of my grasses and he says, oh, phosphorus, that's usual here, you know, and he, and he looked at a plant and he said, it, he read the plants, the landscape, he read everything like a doctor would read the analysis of um, someone's blood or someone's urine. He, but he didn't have to do any testing. He could see it. He, he saw something black on something or something yellow on something. And, you know, um, I, I love that we're getting this now is that we have people who are understanding that this is a different landscape, that we shouldn't be doing what um, was done in Europe and perhaps if we hadn't have destroyed the culture of the Australian Aboriginal, we may have learnt a lot about how they, you know, managed the land for 65,000 plus years as, you know, Bruce Pascoe says in his book, Dark Emu. So... Um, Look, that's right. I, 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 sorry. I'm, no, I was going to say I did a gig with... I did a gig not long ago with Don Huber and he's, he's one of the, uh, the world's great um, soil scientists is now... In his late seventies, early eighties, um, and yet through through a scientific, deep scientific knowledge, he, he can read the landscape, and uh, he's just the most wonderful tool scientist. He understands its holistic complexity, and he's actually with the first because of his intuitive understanding of how soil is such a holistically fun- functioning thing. He was one of the first to sort of ring the bell on the dangers of glyphosate, what it's doing to soil biology. But just on the phosphorus thing, yeah, we're, we we which is critical for a lot of life functions, plants and animals. But, yeah, we don't have much of it. But what the Australian landscape has done over through, through a co, co-evolved mechanisms over, you know, millions of years is really efficient ways of recycling that scarce element very, very quickly through sort of microbial interactions under the ground and then uh, even above the ground recycling via bushfires and stuff. So this, this ancient land has co-evolved uh, unique ways to um, efficiently uh, spread around the scarce resources we do have. You know, we have to respect that. So when you have that sort of very, very sensitive co-evolve functioning and you come along and say put on superphosphate, which is like a massive overkill of of what's a, a powerful element that all those beautiful systems and microorganisms aren't adapted to have all, anything but very small amounts, it, it just sort of has a devastating impact. And, you know, and that's what we've been doing is, is just throwing these, these things on it and, um, and, and that reduces all of our minerals and then when we're also dumping a billion, I think it's a billion kilos a year now of glyphosate or Roundup on our landscape or the world's landscape, we then are kill, we're now killing the ecology of the soil and that's um, creating a real problem too. One of the things that... I know that you speak about is climate change and the factors with climate change. And and I think you talk about eight factors and seven of them, you believe through regenerative agriculture, we can turn this around. So let's first talk about um, what you, how you view climate change and the, um, you know, the precarious condition or predicament that we're in at the moment and how we can see a change happening if we change our agriculture. Uh, look, Cindy, I'm glad you've raised that because uh, it's it's number one, number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on, on a priority list. Um, and I say that because um, 
it's, it's, it's a challenge to the integrated Earth systems, and there's nine of them. Climate is just one of them. It's important, but uh, there's another eight or so. Uh, and I say why it's number one to ten in, in a list of priorities is because um, uh, the current uh, predicament, which is where the Earth systems in, 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 that sort of self-organise to maintain conditions for life, have now been grossly disturbed um, by one species, humans, and that's why it's called this new epoch we've moved into is called the Anthropocene, caused by humans. So there's things like um, uh, destabilisation of climate and um, biodiversity, for example. We're now in, in the sixth greatest extinction event ever in the history of, of Earth, four and a half billion year old Earth. But this event is different to any others because this one's caused by humans. And then the, some of the other systems are freshwater use and land system change and um, ocean acidification and, and integrated phosphorus, nitrogen, et cetera, et cetera. The only one that we, you can't really blame industrial agriculture, which is a major player, is um, the ozone hole, which you know, is partly patched up and that's nothing to do with it. But the other eight out of nine systems, if you look at all the literature and the evidence, uh, industrial agriculture is, if not the major player, certainly a major player in destabilising to dangerous levels those, those systems. And um, uh, why I say it's number one to ten, yes, yes it, it does make world wars look like storms and teacups. There is no other issue confronting us like this one. It's the greatest threat that humanity has ever faced. And you wouldn't think of that when you when you hear our politicians, etc. And um, I mean, just background to this, uh, and I often show in my talks uh, uh, that marvelous photo that uh, the NASA um, astronauts took when they first looked back at this blue green planet, which was sort of a mind changing um, impact. It's blue-green because life itself created conditions for life. It's the only one we know of in the universe that has life on it. And um, so, for example, about 3.2 billion years ago, um, uh, bacteria first um, released oxygen into the atmosphere for the first time. And, and then, you know, over 400 million years ago, you had uh, lichens and fungi and stuff starting to break down rocks to create the first soils, and then that followed life um, plant life led to the great forests and so the carbon dioxide cycle began to be regulated. So this planet is blue-green and sustaining this extraordinary uh, range of life, including us, because life created those conditions. But now uh, we are really seriously uh, threatening it and I'm just gobsmacked at the, um, in the face of just so much evidence, you know, 95, 98% of scientists across the spectrum, not just physics and chemistry, but fish biology, insect biology, the whole range. They are saying this is a massive crisis, and yet you'd, you'd think uh, our politicians lived in um, in a different world, the, uh, most of them, um, and, and, you know, and, and some others. So um, that's why I said it, I'm glad you asked the question, because it is the number one big issue. And to pick up the rest of your question, um, we, we now know that um, leading practices of regenerative agriculture can really address um, the destabilisation of these systems. And I'll just give you one example. A, a, a thinker and a, and a writer and a scientist that I admire enormously is Paul Hawke, and he's, he's written some wonderful stuff over the last three or four decades about social and environmental change and re regenerating them. 
And he got sick about 15 years ago. He got sick of asking a lot of climate scientists, what do we do about it? And they said, well, I don't know. We're sort of good at looking at the numbers of what's happening. So he co-opted 70 leading thinkers and scientists to look at the 100 best methods of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and and putting and, and um, squirreling it away, if you like, and, and stopping it being released. And so in the last year or so, they've published a, a beautiful book called Drawdown, the 100 best methods to draw down carbon dioxide. And then 80 of them are, are really fully costed to you know, high detail, um, as in calculated how much you can pull. And when I looked at, at those 80, um, there's six or seven or so regenerative ag methods, but they're all doing the same thing. And I said to Paul, if you put them together and just call them all regenerative ag, they're all under that umbrella, regenerative agriculture is number one by nearly two and a half times the next best method of pulling out carbon dioxide and, and putting it back into the uh, storing in the soil. And, uh, so we're, we're number one, what uh, the leading regenerative farming can do, whether it's agroforestry or silver pastoral, holistic grazing, um, you know, biological farming. Um, if, if that's not exciting, I don't know what is. So that's why I'm, I'm, um, I'm sort of doing a lot of talking and I've written my book. I, I just think uh, when you've got a solution that's sitting there and, and in turn, I know you're going to get to this, which also relates to healthy food and healthy humanity. Um, you know, that, that is so exciting. It's, uh, it's a wonder everyone's not jumping up and down. I agree with you. I, but, you know, I was at a, a social function recently and um, a whole bunch of people were there from the Grain Research and Development Corporation. And I started having a conversation about, you know, farming and, and ways of farming. And, you know, one of the women who was a farmer there said to me, Roundup is the only way we're going to feed the world. She said, we can't do it without it. She was a chickpea and, I don't know, maybe wheat farmer. I can't remember. But I just, but this is the attitude. And, and, um, she also went around to farmers and asked them uh, whether they, what was their greatest thing that they wanted to overcome and they don't want to use herbicides for their, for the weeds. They, they want to do it differently. And she just said, well, there's no other way. That's the only way. And so this is the attitude we're up against. So how do you, how do you deal with people like that that um, are part of a government organisation that have that attitude? Look, uh, it's totally understandable and I, I'm not going to sort of get up and condemn anyone that thinks that way because, you know, initially, uh, as I explained when I started farming, I was sort of indoctrinated into that paradigm. It's all about paradigms and worldview and, and how we're trained into them and they can get locked in cement. That's what we've found. It's very hard to change and so I, I just find it all understandable but let's address the issues you raised. Um, Yes, modern cropping requires um, chemicals, particularly the world's largest used herbicide or weedicide, which is Roundup straight glyphosate, nearly a million tonnes per year. Um, but if you really pull apart the numbers, and, and the recent figures come from the uh, United Nations Food and Agricultural Organisation, 70% of the world's food comes off peasant farms of five acres or less, and predominantly run by women, and predominantly run on, on biological um, methods and with, you know, quite diverse interrelationship of plants uh, and, and therefore more productive than in, in, in industrial farms. 
So that's point one. If we've moved, I haven't seen the figures of going to 10 acres, but it would probably move the world's food to 75 uh, to 80%. That's exciting. Then if you look at... <laughs> that's unbelievably exciting. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all biological methods. And if you then look at... Um, what's happening in, in global food systems, we're wasting between 30 and 40% of the food through various methods. Um, and, and so when you add all that up, uh, and there's lots of land that's not used, it could be used, you know, you think about greening the city, switching to food gardens and community gardens and the whole thing. It, calculations by people that, that are across these, these figures are that we could feed 11 billion today. So it's a furphy that we're a, we can't feed a bigger population, um, but B, that we need the industrial world to do it. The industrial world, which are all the biggest multinationals in the world, um, getting wealthier by the second, um, and, and predicated behaviour on endless growth and destruction, because endless growth is absolutely suicidal policy of neoliberal economic rationalism predicated on endless growth. It means endless destruction, and uh, whether it's Amazon forests or... Um, Indonesian rainforest or uh, what Australia is even doing to a lot of our woodlands. It's, it's, uh, you can't get away from the, the destruction. And um, um, to, you know, there is a different way of, of going about it. And uh, I'm, I'm, let me give you another stat that puts it in perspective. Because post-Second World War, those big corporations realised that the future of their profitability using the um, stockpile weaponry and chemicals after left over after the Second World War was to move to a commodified food chain to turn um, uh, the broad landscapes of the industrial world into producing just a commodity food, which uh, based on chemicals that they were going to sell and the equipment they were going to sell, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's how it really got rolling uh, in, in step with government policy, particularly the United States. And I saw an analysis the other day done, I think it was Iowa State Uni. Um, they looked at the current state of American industrial agriculture, which is basically the big crops of corn, soy, some of the cereals, uh, and uh, particularly corn and soy, predicated on genetically modified um, seeds, hybrid seeds. The farmer has to buy them every year. He can't grow his own seed. And, and um, predicated on using huge amounts of um, Roundup glyphosate, as you said. So what happens in the States now, in the, in the big cropping zones, if you think about the big prairie corn uh, cereal soy belt, they, they have this unique um, crop insurance program, government subsidy to the tune of tens of billions, which actually was a healthy thing, originally went back to Roosevelt in the, in the Great Depression, his New Deal thing. Um, but... Um, so what it does now, if, if, if you uh, grow one of those big major industrial crops, you can get um, under the crop insurance program uh, cover, even if it's weather or incompetence or bad luck, you, you can get full crop protection. But uh, there's a catch. Uh, you only get it if you grow the subscribed GM seeds, buy the hybrid seeds, um, buy the right fertilisers, buy the right, spray the right chemicals, etc. So what this university team did was, really pull the numbers apart because with you've got a crop insurance program that's a huge subsidy you've got direct subsidies that are dumping food around the world which has caused havoc and you know developing countries or the global south etc so when they pulled all that apart and ripped out the subsidies in two of the major um, crops 
corn and soy, the average American farmer is making a loss between 60 and 90 US dollars per acre. Um, and that's why they're going break by the dozens. So then they looked at the other side of the coin, a big uh, multinational supplying the chemicals, the seed, um, the machinery and the whole lot of it, and a collective profit of 350 billion US. So on the one hand, you've got the big end of town that's driven the whole system making mega profits and you've got the farmers diminishing by the day, uh, making a lot. So I think that says it all. Uh, and that's why you constantly hear this argument that uh, we need the big end of town and all their chemicals to grow feed to food the world, to grow food to feed the world. It's absolute crap. I, I like that you said that. <laughs> I, look, I have some other friends who are um, really close friends from Western Australia and they're farmers. And when they first started following me, they changed everything about the way they ate, what they ate, they changed um, around their yard because they've got seven, I think it's 13 or 17,000 hectares in Western Australia and it's wheat, um, their main crop is wheat. And they, they changed everything. They went organic, they did everything within the home and around. But that farm's been sitting there since 1952, I believe, in the same family and the son has taken it on now and he's been doing it for like 30 years, I guess. And um, he, he feels like he's between a rock and a hard place. He can see his chemical bill going up, 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 up and his profits going down. And he said there's going to soon be a point where it'll just be a walk away. And it's who do we, you know, he wants to change and he's looking at things like every time we talk, we, we talk about something he's trialling. Um, but these are the people that, you know, if they do walk away, there's, I think he says 23,000 tonnes of wheat that he sends to the port and it goes to Asia. Yeah. What, you know, what do we do about these guys that want to change and just don't know where to go? It's really interesting. Um, one of the people I, uh, an extraordinary husband and wife, I write about in my book in Western Australia in the really tough sort of sand country, um, northeast of Perth and up towards the pastoral country. Mm. They have enacted a world revolution. This is Ian and Di Haggerty, is their, is their name, up near Wild Ketchum. And um, they got concerned about what was happening to the land and um, increased diseases and increased rust and increased frost damage and uh, if you get a wet harvest, increased damage and all that. And they swung over. They've, it took them years, but they've trialled uh, and then perfected. It's ongoing development, of course, but they now, have, they now crop huge acreage using total biological inputs, which they've, they've worked out. They use sort of combination of worm juice um, uh, with compost extract, uh, which they drop around the seed of planting. And, and um, as Ian says, I mean, we're using, we've just adapted the same big machinery. And, and um, so, you know, he won't hop in a track unless he does 120 hectares in a day or something. Yeah. Um, and what's happening in the Western Australian Grain Belt is really alarming, just like the States. Um, they've had a series of droughts so you know you borrow huge in the millions if you're a reasonable sized cropper to get your crop in if you lose the harvest that goes out of the debt and if you lose the second harvest you're really vulnerable and um the debt level in uh, in western australian wheat has got very um you know it's dangerous proportions and so talking to 
Ian and Di the other day. They ran a, they've been running field days for a while because they've worked with some of the world's and Australia's best soil scientists, uh, many of them women, which is interesting. Um, and initially they'd, they'd get a, a polite, few polite inquiries, you know, five, 10, 15 might turn up. But the other day they ran uh, a field day with some top soil scientists and over 100 people turned up, including the second biggest grain grower in Australia. And it was all positive. And, um, and the, the reason is that while everyone around them has been going broke or further in debt, they have grown their business from 1,600 hectares to 30,000. And um, so they're doing something right because they've absolutely slashed their costs, even though the yields may not be as great. But their resilience is, is through the roof with frost and weather damage and all the rest of it and, and uh, their healthy soil biology and they use sheep grazing across it so they have an extra enterprise as well. The sheep are integral to stimulating the biology. And this rising interest is a reflection that the pressure is now on. People are, uh, and their soils are hitting the wall all over the American cropping belt in Australia. It's the same. There's a hard pan underneath the shallow cropping zone, uh, which because you don't have perennial roots that can access the other stuff, whereas the new systems are starting to break that. And all the other issues I've touched on, without, without which we should discuss the um, chemical that's getting into modern food. But this destabilisation as the pressure comes on, a lot of us are doing talks to land care and farmers groups across the country. We're noticing once upon a time you get 30, 40 people, now you're getting 100, 150, 200, um, asking serious questions. There is a definite unsettlement um, as information on climate, Anthropocene, but also, you know, the finances. It's, I, I detect that there's definitely a shift on. Which is wonderful to hear. You know, one of the things that um, we're getting in the grocery stores is food, but not necessarily nutrient-dense food. And, um, you know, food security is getting, I think, um, worse and worse, you know, with listeria outbreaks and all sorts of um, bacterias um, that are, are poisonous to the human and, and can make the human quite sick. Um, so we're starting to get, number one, foods that aren't necessarily nutrient-dense. And, and number two, we're getting food, food security is, is compromised. In World War II, they had things in the US called victory gardens where everybody um, had to have a garden, a, a, you know, a food-bearing garden in their backyard. Do you think that if we, you know, put that into play, that you had to have food-bearing trees and food-bearing gardens, um, would that be part of what you were talking about helping with climate change and... Um, you know, making that change would would that make much of a difference if that was put into play? That's a really great question, and <clears throat> my simple answer is yes. I mean, I I grew up here in the fifties. We're a fair way out of town here in um, Monero country, snowy mountains. Um, so we'd we'd get a few things delivered by a male person, but basically we grew nearly all our own vegetables. Uh, obviously, our own meat. Uh, had our own wood, so we we're pretty self-sufficient, and it, and it was healthy food. Uh, people knew how to grow their veggies, and if you look at the Great Depression and Second World War in Australia, a lot of people in the city grew veggies. Uh, that knowledge was still around. Um, and yes, we, we 
you know, you look at programs like Stephanie Alexander with, with school school gardens. I mean, when kids start growing greens and seeing the magic of it, they're, they're very happy to eat their own veggies. Whereas, you know, if they get them out of a the bland crap you'll get out of a supermarket shelf, uh, they turn their noses up because they're seduced by a, a McDonald's or something. But um, this has such wider connotations, and I really want to get onto the, the healthy food aspect. But um, one of the connotations is this: that, um, and I, I quote some statistics in the book. But Planet Ark is a not-for-profit environment group. They surveyed children in Australia. I think it was six years and under, and only about one in four has ever climbed a tree or rock. You know, we're really getting so divorced from Mother Nature, and, and I think ten-year-olds and under in another survey every hour of outdoor play and that's in vastly diminished gardens if, if you're not in a high-rise flat and you've got access to outdoor healthy green space but for every hour of outdoor play at least seven hours in front of a screen of some sort so we're increasingly divorced from nature so to re-green our cities and develop those skills and have families starting to grow healthy food or community gardens or getting involved in, in community gardens absolute key part of the solution it's not just the farms we have to have um, on a smaller scale um, similar things happening in the city and 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 then the city people that can't do that um, get involved in CSAs you know community supported agriculture or whatever that they, they do re do connect with the farming and healthy world as, as we've got some great models around Australia like food connect and other people so it's such a huge um, issue you've raised it's it's a two-part solution it's not just farming it, it's it's the urban people and, and quality of life and enjoyment and then physical mental health goes through the roof once that happens as well not just a healthier environment but the, the sheer act of reconnecting with nature so look the, the big issue that um you've raised that we both sort of touched on indirectly is what industrial foods are doing to human health and and the answer is um, massive impact for a number of reasons so the first one is glyphosate despite all the naysayers from the big industrial end of town uh, the, the evidence now is that it, it is getting into our food so it's water soluble it's into our groundwater and our surface water uh, it's even been found to evaporate and then be come down in rain in parts that haven't used glyphosate for example, so it's getting into our food. Um, there's a lot of testing showing that. Um, and, um, you know, if you think about the core grains and corn, the way it penetrates the industrial food system from corn syrup the whole way, you know, and, and soy, etc. cetera. Um, and, and it's doing it, it's two key pathways where it's causing damage. Um, we now know, and, and people like Don Huber, uh, who you mentioned earlier, been across this, as, as, as have other great soil scientists who are ringing the bell early, like Dr. Robert Kramer used to be with the US Department of Ag. Obviously, once he got too involved in looking at glyphosate, he didn't keep his tenure. But, um, so the first major damaging pathway is that when we ingest food containing or, or drink water containing glyphosate, it, 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 it um, it, the way it chemically acts is the first thing. Um, it's what's called a chelator. It was discovered as a wonderful chemical in the 60s to strip lining, rusted linings and other um, 
uh, accretions inside galvanised pipes, for example. So it, it means it grabs hold of chemicals and locks them up. So um, that's why when you spray a paddock with Roundup, it turns yellow. And so you can imagine what happens when that gets into your gut uh, to all the valuable uh, minerals and nutrients, etc. But what it's also doing in your gut is that it's directly interfering in a major amino acid pathway production line, and, and which is related to our immune system, key hormones and and enzymes, etc. And it's chopping that off towards the end of that process, so really opening up our defences to attack and, and lowering our immune capacity. So that's number one in addition to the collating effect. Number two, being water-soluble, we now know it is penetrating some of the key defence barriers in our body, like our gut lining, blood-brain barrier, and uh, there's evidence now showing some really sensitive uh, membranes, like uh, placental membranes, etc. So, um, so that's, um, you know, and in a lot of the modern diseases, uh, there's no, none of them are single factorial, but you can bet, um, given what the evidence that's mounting and mounting, a huge number of published papers now telling it, it's definitely connected to modern mental and physical health diseases. But, but the other aspect which you've alluded to is, is losing nutrient integrity, density, variety in our food. So let me give you one example. <clears throat> a really healthy soil, um, a lot of compost and um, the, the key part to, to healthy soil is lots of soil biology, a vast range of bugs and microorganisms and fungus, etc. Um, and, and, you know, I, for example, I remember <laughs> uh, I, I, I sat through a soil, I did a soil science course in the early 70s as an undergraduate and I sat through a course when I went back to do a PhD uh, nearly 40 years later. And both courses still focus on chemistry and physics. <clears throat> They've forgotten or omit or don't think it's important. Soil biology is the real stick to healthy soil because uh, it will look after the chemistry and the physics once you get it right. And um, so it's, it's this biology that is responsible for accessing a vast range of micronutrients, uh, of, of minerals and, and, um, and phytonutrients, whether the, um, the other nutrients that plants like shrubs uh, can um, <clears throat> put down. And, and there's tens of thousands, uh, whether it's uh, phenols or terpenes or whatever. And just one dramatic example I, I heard from a top soil scientist the other day, that the, the, the root fungus, the microhousal fungi, and there's a few of them, but they are absolutely fundamental to this food access sourcing. And they have micro feeding tubes they they actually you know, get fed plant sugars from the plant root tips, you know, a healthy system. And then their little microtubes go off and their part of the bargain is to go off and source nutrients for the plant, so to speak. In a, in a really good healthy soil, uh, in, in one cubic meter, it could be up to 25,000 kilometers of these microtubes all working away, accessing a variety of nutrients and micronutrients, etc., minerals. Oh my gosh, you that's stunning. In. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? And I've seen uh, I've seen wonderful photos recently, uh, chalk and cheese between industrial soils and mm -hmm. biological soils, and all the microtubes on the biologically healthy ones. But if you then set about ploughing, spraying, over fertilising, you kill off those fungus and, and and what they're doing, and you end up with basically drug addict plants waiting for their daily dose, well, not daily, but their dose of 
nitrogen potassium, you know, the NPK uh, fertilizer, and, and they've missed out on 99% of the really important stuff. Now, that important stuff is what we co-evolved for over, you know, the million years of modern hominid evolution. We 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 have detectors through our body to detect whether it's in our organs, our alimentary canal, our stomach, all feeding to the brain uh, on critical elements needed for health, which and complex physiological processes to function. We're ignoring these key pathways that we're co-evolved to have all these vital things. And uh, industrial ag, they, it's really the hidden cost that people aren't talking about. It's, it's having a major impact on, on modern health through basically um, starving us of the right and important nutrients. It's interesting because I've, um, you know, been a nutritionist for 40 years and um, before um, probably a decade ago, um, you know, you would put somebody on a real food diet um, from the SAD diet, the standard Australian diet of breakfast cereals and things like that, and you put them on a real food diet and they would pick up and get well. These days you can put them on a real food diet and they don't. They Their gut... Um, microbiome is so um, out of whack and compromised. Um, their immune systems aren't working. Their, um, you know, the gut and the blood-brain barrier open. So it's, it's um, you know, and even back then we didn't talk organic. It was just let's get onto real foods. Now, um, you know, there like there's evidence out now that if you've on a, an organic diet, the likelihood of you getting cancer is far less than um, if you're on um, a diet where it's industrial agriculture that's doing it. So, what what I find interesting is that the, there's such a huge correlation between soil bacteria and the gut, gut bacteria, between the minerals that are pulled up by those 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 bugs in the soil and are needed. And ours, and it's like all the systems are all the same, and we've just ignored them and tried to, de, you know, demolish any bacteria or bug or fungi in the human world as well as now the soil world. And as a result, we're we're seeing a massive um, change in the health of humans and the health of animals and the health of our plants. And I just, um, yeah, I, I just love when. We all, if we, we would all start to get this and understand this, that if we destroy one system, we're destroying another system, and it sounds like we're also destroying the climate as well. Look, look Cindy, you've, um, you know, here's me um, teaching you to suck eggs as a nutritionist uh, from a more holistic perspective of soil and, and nature and stuff. But you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's we. It's, it's part of the mechanical mind. We think reductionistly, in a reductionist manner, that you can reduce everything. And it's the old story, you know. Uh, you, you start to um, dissect down into the, the mechanical parts. You miss the big picture, which is the whole. I mean, the, the co-evolved systems that we have. One of the things that a healthy soil does, particularly some of the bacteria, is it, it's brilliant at detoxifying um, disease-causing elements by whatever reason. And there's a, a wonderful uh, American medico who uh, worked with uh, autism for a long while and then um, got really concerned about its acceleration from the mid-90s 
um, I think the rate in the, in the States, I know the diagnostics might have changed, but it's gone from something like one in 5,000 in the 70s to about one in 140 now in American children. I think it's, it's really it's hard because he's that. dealing with... Mm, I think it's one in 48 crisis. or something now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's something going on. So he started yeah. to work with some scientists and... Um, he discovered it, this guy's name is Zach Bush. I'm sure you're more than I know Zach. Yes, wonderful I follow fans. him. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, there you go. He's one. But one of the things that re- really got him fired up was the fact that, the, as you just pointed out, the same bacteria in the soil that were doing the detoxifying, same species, were the ones in our microbiome doing exactly the same thing, and um, we start eating crap food without the sort of key things to build the immune system or put in glyphosate and we're knocking out that, that, yet that one other part of our complex, healthy environment. So it's so complex. You know, the minute you start not treating it um, like we co-evolved for, which is diverse range of micro, macronutrients, minerals, the whole thing, the minute we try and simplify it with this crap industrial food and the poisons that are in it and drinking and eating too much sugar and, and all the stuff you must have gone on about for years. <laughs> I mean, why are we surprised that we have this modern health um, crisis? And, and it is. I mean, things like autism and obesity alone could destroy an economy within 30, 40 years. Yeah, definitely. What, you know what's really interesting is um, I'm finding that people can't even tolerate lettuce. And so I started to look into it and find out, well, what's happening to the lettuce? And I found out that... Um, all of our bagged lettuce is being sanitised by something called Nature Seal in the conventional um, sanitisation of lettuce. And in the organic, I think it's an acetic acid. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but it's a sanitizer. No matter what, it's a sanitizer. And I was listening, um, and I think it was Zach. I think it was Zach Bush I was listening to, and he said that if the soil bacteria are not on the lettuce then you can't digest that lettuce. It's actually the soil bacteria that's on the lettuce when you pick it that allows your body to digest it. And, it, and so we're doing, I don't know if you, you've heard this, but we're doing all this crazy stuff to our food by sanitizing it because of, um, you know, the, the bacteria that is resistant to glyphosate, which I believe listeria is one, and I can't remember the other one that's um, resistant to glyphosate. So now we're sterilising it, so they're not there, and now even lettuce is being hard to digest for people. So this is crazy this is what, stuff, is Robin. And yeah. if you go back a step, why are we doing all these things? Because it suits the big end of town, the big multinationals, the big retailers. It's mm-hmm. pure and simple for their profits. Uh, as well as anything uh, sort of more basic like the well-being of customers, it's secondary by a country mile away. But, you know, I think back to uh, what's behind what Jack's also saying is the fact that, you know, as kids, um, they need to crawl around in the dirt and ingest dirt and stuff because that builds the microbiome and the immune system and the whole thing. And, and, uh, you know, pulling up a lettuce out of the garden, you're never going to wash everything off it and then neither you should. And ingesting a bit more soil and all the bacteria and stuff, it's just so integral. It's, sort of, mm. it's thinking biologically versus that me- mechanistic thing, isn't it? It's really yeah. You know, my father says, I like that man. He thinks like I do. And um, I must admit, um, I like you because you think so much in your realm like I do in my realm. And... Um, 
where this will be going is on um, my Functional Nutrition Academy, which has students in nutrition. And um, our two modules, our first two modules, the first one is vitalism versus mechanism. So we actually go through that, how the human body is seen mechanistically now as opposed to vitalistically. Um, so it's seen mechanistically in that if you have a heart attack then or a heart problem, then let's just go to a cardiologist or if you've got you know, arthritis, you go to a rheumatologist and so on. So we view the body very mechanistically and we don't view it in its environment or we don't view it as a holistic thing. So that's our first one, which is the way you look at, at everything as well. And the second module is the anthropological principles of, of food and eating, looking at other cultures and realizing that there are cultures out there that have adapted to very many different foods depending on the environment they lived on. So, you know, considering the Himbas had dairy um, because they lived in the desert region or the Kagiyas who live at 14,000 feet above sea level um, in a snowy environment and they live on dairy as well. So I, I love that your view of the land and agriculture and climate and everything like that is, is very much in alignment with our view at the Functional Nutrition Academy. And uh, I, I, I would love... Um, you know, for you to speak more on how do we as people that are interested in our health, um, what, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we find the foods that are not in, industrialized? So where would we go as individuals that are interested in our nutrition and want to eat nutrient-dense foods? Yeah, um, you're full of easy questions today, aren't you? Um, look, um I, I totally concur with what you're saying. I, I just think about the Hunzas. Uh, they also had a wonderful apricot uh, economy as well and um, up there in the uh, Himalayas. Um, yeah, I, I wish I, I was 40 years younger. I think I'd sit through your course. Look, what it comes back to, uh, I was very fortunate when I was an undergraduate, I was doing zoology because um, I wanted to be a wildlife researcher, but I was lucky. I had a rather, uh, you call it mechanistically minded professor. So at that time, the, the very first course in Australia, um, university course in holistic thinking and holism, human ecology began at ANU and I, I was one of the early enrollers. And I did my PhD nearly 40 years later in human ecology, still at ANU at the Fenner School. And that really woke me to the importance of how everything is interrelated and interconnected and you can only see um, how it's co-evolved for so, so many millions of years. The only way of really getting a feel for all the complexities and interactions is, is this form of holistic thinking rather than the mechanistic reductionist thing of breaking it down into parts of modern Western science. You know, post-Newton and um, Bacon and those guys sort of really, and Rousseau, really ingrained in us. So, um, the, the secret, I would say, um, is, is for anyone embarking to try and study, uh, try and do a human ecology or a holistic course somehow, because that that will that will help change your worldview from a mechanistic to one that sees the world as a whole, and you know you can't fiddle around with any of its indivisible parts because everything is interconnected, and it's, it's as you point out, it's it's a totally different 
way of viewing things, but that's the way the real world works. It, everything is connected to everything else. And uh, I think we, we've just uh, sort of explored that in our discussion about what we're doing with industrial food, et cetera, haven't we? Yeah, that, definitely. That fully answered what, what your question was, has it? Well, I guess... Um I guess what you were saying in the in the beginning was that you know seventy percent of um, the foods that is supplied around the world is from small farmers, and as long as we continue to support our major supermarkets, we're not looking at our small farmers. I don't think I might be wrong there. So it would be you know it'd be lovely to to support our small farmers in our local areas. Yeah. And, seasonal local foods yep. perhaps and it's a matter of finding them this is this is always the issue unless you've got a farmer's market but many of the farmer's markets here well not so much like they used to be but many of the farmer's markets they go down to the Rockley markets in Brisbane and they get the food from, <laughs> that anybody else is getting and they're not even farmers they're just you know the middleman so yeah. Yeah. Look, sorry, I, I, that was the second part of the uh, of your question and, and look yes. I've been fortunate recently um, to be involved um, in Western Australia, down at Albany in the Great Southern area. Um, the Western Australian Minister of Agriculture, Alana McTiernan, really wants to drive change towards regenerative agriculture and healthy wow. food and regional food. She's quite a very, very impressive and, mm. and, and against a lot of opposition, as you can imagine, the uh, chemical agronomists and all the rest of it. But what we're, a few of us were over there talking at and, and interacting, um, the, the the local government region around Albany um, is now got a regional food economy going, uh, which is building off farmers' markets. And um, I'm not too sure if they got CSAs, but certainly farmers' markets. But they're now involving um, some of the Aboriginal and Noongar people and others to um, start delivering bush tucker into it and, and et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, if you're lucky to be in an area like that, you've got access. And, and the other thing I was involved with was with um, what Robert Pekin and Food Connect have developed in Brisbane, which is, you know, um, CSA and, and food boxes. And now they're going the next step. And um, I think the first step for those of you, if, if you're not lucky to have something like that, is um, first of all, start growing your own and taste the difference uh, and how exciting and rewarding it is. Um, but secondly, um, can you get together with people um, and start to start something small and then see where that grows or, or, or go and approach farmers nearby? Can you buy a, a box of veggies or something? But uh, all I can say is if you have children and you value their health and their well-being and, uh, and your own, um, shift your food preferences. The, the big end of town, the, the two, the domination by, of this duopoly, He's just delivering, by and large, crap and poison. And if you really want to save your health and that of your children and live longer, etc., cetera, uh, or, or certainly uh, live longer in a better fashion, um, start sourcing uh, homegrown food, whether it's your own or, or approaching farmers. Go to the nearest field days that might be around on, on CSAs or farmers markets or food boxes or something. But I, I would say... It should be right up the top of your priority list because your own health and that of your children and grandchildren is fundamental and then extrapolate that further. So is the health of the earth because if we start growing healthy food, we're going to pull down carbon and, and uh, encourage biodiversity and all those other things that we've destabilised. So it's, it's you know, small action, big picture.
Yeah, wise words. And um, I hope people heed those, those wonderful words. Uh, my family is from Iowa, USA. My grandfather was a corn farmer um, back in the oh, 40s right. and 50s. Yeah, my, they were pig farmers. All my uncles like were pig farmers. or So we were in farming. And um, my mother was born in 1937. And in 38 and 39, they sprayed um, 14 states of the US with arsenic and lead. And then by the 40s, you know, DDT was being sprayed and my um, my sister was born in the US and amongst all the DDT being sprayed in the cornfields, everywhere like that, and they both died young. So dear, I, dear. I, I heard when you interviewed many of these farmers for your fabulous book that 60% wanted to change due to a major shock that they had had. Do you want to just extrapolate um, on, you know, what was happening to these farmers? Yeah. Uh, can I just answer another thought before I get into that? Because that's a key question. Um, and this thought is that what a lot of people also don't realise is that to grow uh, vegetables, crops, fruits industrially, they've, they're breeding plants that suit the industrial inputs, uh, high production, and and they're shedding traits that they don't think are important so they can get maximum volume and maximum response. What is being shed is the capacity for those plants, as they've co-evolved over millions of years, to go and access lots of nutrients. So a lot of the research now showing, for example, in I saw a paper the other day, 60 of the soft whites, the modern bread wheats. Um, yes, they can breed a dwarf variety that's responsive to fertilizer and irrigation, but the nutrients have crashed out of sight because I've lost those genes in, in, in targeting single-mindedly some of the other productive things. And the same is happening in fruits and same happening in veggies. I mean, I remember as a kid, we've got um, a sort of 1840s mulberry trees here and you, you climb a tree um, when it was forbidden, I guess, and um, the taste just explodes in your mouth, and we still got those trees. And then I, I, I bought a tree early in my marriage that, of, of an industrial um, product, big fruit, absolutely tasteless. So that's the other aspect. Um, but look, the big question you've asked <coughs> is change. Um, so yeah, in, in my PhD, I interviewed 80 leading regenerative farmers across Australia, and then a lot more since as I've travelled overseas and, and travelled more widely in Australia. And my, my thesis was actually um, examining transformative change in, in regenerative farming. And um, I only found one other bit of research that looked at this, and that was in um, transformative learning in the States. And both had very similar results, which was in about 60% of the cases. Uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a case in point. Began as an industrial farmer, and, and you think that's right, and you can't conceive that any other way could be different. But suddenly you change, and in 60% of the cases, it was a sort of major life shock that cracked your mind open to be receptive to change. And you know that can be drought. In my case, and lots of lots of us, as one farm told me, that the 80s drought was a big head cracker. But we've had some other big ones, and we're in a big one again now. And that's why I think there's more and more people turning up. Um, quite a few of them had, had accidental poisoning with chemical accidents. Um, oh uh, one leading innovative cropper was 
burns in a bushfire, uh, marriage breakup, big disease outbreak that destroyed a herd. A whole lot of things that really cracked your mind and you were put back to the wall. You had to think of doing something different. And in the other 40% of cases, it was more um, a, a series of little destabilizations or else they were already that way inclined. But um, and, I, and I would suspect that major health issues is another one, but certainly chemical poisoning and, and disease and stuff is, is also a component. Yeah, yeah it, make, uh, it wakes and, people and I, up, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And, and, and because that's how, the, if you can understand how the mind works, when, once you get a mental paradigm locked in, such as the mechanistic view or industrial view of farming, the, the metaphors and language and everything that goes with it locks. It's very deeply uh, inherited in our evolved history and it locks your mind into a certain way of thinking and belief. And that's why some people are incredulous that you can do something different or think differently. And, and, and I think it's behind a lot of the climate skepticism that, you know, it's, it's, it's a deep paradigm that um, uh, if you challenge it, <clears throat> you're challenging their whole worldview and, and their way of living and and, um, and believing, <clears throat> as we're seeing with Trump America, for mm. example. But you're seeing it, this polarisation um, everywhere. So you're, you're seeing it, you know, there's the vaccine issue, there's the chemical in- issue, there's the medical model versus the alternative health model. Um, there's the climate change versus there's no climate change. And, you know, I, I just am seeing a greater and greater polarisation than I've ever seen before. And I, I guess my last question to you is, with your knowledge of agriculture and what's happening here in Australia and around the world, do you think there's hope? Do you think we're going to change? Yeah. Um Look, I'm positive. That's why I've written a book and that's why I'm, I'm sort of flat out doing a lot of talking and writing articles and things. Uh, if we give up hope, we're gone. I mean, we are an extraordinary species, despite being a problematic one. Um, you know, you, we, we've had, you know, your Nelson Mandela's and others, uh, and then you get a Trump. But our capacity... Um, which no other species has got. It's, it's quite wonderful. And, and uh, I know we can turn things around. And, and uh, if we could shift our eating behaviours and uh, our agriculture across, we, we can address some of these big Anthropocene issues. I know there's big lag effects and, and uh, where I'm attached today. And you, some of the leading climate and, and earth system scientists are, are just down right and I know they're getting a bit more depressed but you know we've, we've got to hold uh, we've got to believe that we can turn it around you know look at how um, Second World War great nations galvanised against pure evil when in many ways we're, we are up against quite pure evil I see that the the the, the, um, the lockstep between uh, neoliberal beliefs economic rationalism and the biggest corporations who continually get richer and richer and, and the concentration of wealth versus the rest of us. It's, it's almost a good versus evil battle. I, I think we have to turn that around. And, and what I do, and I say it in my book, the solutions aren't going to come from the top. They're not going to come from politics. They're not going to come from all the vested interests because they're all vested in making 
profits and then power. The, the solution is bottom-up driven. I call it an underground insurgency. I'm playing on the soil there too. It's, it's we farmers shifting to growing healthy food and regenerating landscapes and addressing the big earth system. And it's the urban our partners in, in the urban areas and country towns um, getting involved in, in greening their urban areas and their cities, buying healthy food, accessing it, growing their own food, joining CSAs and, and the food movement. Between us, um, we can take on the top end by, by uh, this revolution from underneath. That's what's going to change it. And that's exciting. Yeah. I think that's really exciting. Well, it just means that the power's in our hand, really. If you, if we, exactly. If we think it's going to be the government that's going to change or, you know, big agra or big farmer or whatever, then we just, we're just look, losing like a – or trying to win a battle that we're losing. Um, whereas if we come from, okay, I have the power to choose the right foods, to nourish my body – and with that, I have the power to change climate. I think that it is more empowering than trying to lobby anybody that's happening and that, that we've got in government, as you alluded to in the beginning. <laughs> it's, um, Look, if, if, every time we don't buy a chemical drum or a bit of fertiliser or that packet of spray on a, on a supermarket shelf, every time we go and buy healthy food from an organic farm or whatever, uh, and every time we don't go into fast food shop um, but cook something healthy at home that we've grown or we've sourced from that farm, we are firing a shot at the powers that be that are getting greedier and greedier and destroying the planet. And that's, that's the sort of form that I see. It's also it's a form of our empowerment and it's, it's, a, it's a way of fighting back because uh, every time we deny them a purchase, we're denying them more profit. And um, if we all do that, um, you know, hopefully they'll crumble away. Yeah, we can only hope. Well, Charles, I want to thank you very much for your time. Um, I could, I have about a hundred more questions, but um, I like to limit to about an hour, and we've just gone over the hour. And so, thank you very much for spending the time speaking with me and explaining, you know, what's happening in agriculture and and that there is hope, but that we must work from. Um, what did you call it again? An insurgence from the underground, or? <laughs> Underground insurgency, Insurgen that's what I'm preaching. Love it, love it. Thank you very <laughs> look, much. Look, I really enjoyed it. Thank no, you. thanks, Cindy. Great questions and very enjoyable. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. I want to thank you all for listening to Dr. Charles Massey uh, do an amazing interview on how he feels that climate change um, can be solved with our agricultural practices and that the food that we choose to consume um, can make all the difference. Even as individuals, we can make a difference. So, you know, start supporting our local farmers and, uh, you know, doing the right thing. The reason uh, I have been interviewing farmers and, and farmers doing great things, and especially, especially in regenerative agriculture, is that the Functional Nutrition Academy, which is my registered training organisation that teaches nutrition and the microbiome and introduction to nutrition, fundamentals and applied, is that we've decided to create a, a new program called Nutrient-Dense Food Production. And at the moment, we are creating that program and our first few modules, probably the first four, will be on soil health. Because as Charles Massey said, is when we have good, healthy soils, 
then uh, we will have nutrient-dense foods. And so I think that this is a really important part of the next step in getting the best nutrition that we can possibly get. You know, food doesn't cut it anymore uh, if you're getting it out of grocery stores. It's, you know, it's being deprived of minerals due to our agricultural practices. And, you, you know, you heard Charles talk about that. So thanks, everybody, to listening. Uh, if you want to go to our Facebook page, just go to Up for a Chat and read all the comments or give us some comments. Um, go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and we will see you next week. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.